Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've said it a bunch of times on the podcast, Tim Ryan ran the best losing campaign in America in 2022. The 10-term Democratic congressman from Youngstown made a race out of his Senate contest with Republican J.D. Vance in Ohio, which once was a swing state, but now has swung decidedly red. I sat down with Ryan recently at the Institute of Politics to talk about his life, the campaign, and lessons learned. Here's that conversation. Tim Ryan, it's good to see you. You look incredibly relaxed all of a sudden. I don't know what it is. I have the post-congressional glow. (laughs) Let me ask you about that, because you were there for 20 years. Yeah. We scheduled this for a Monday so that you could get on a plane and go somewhere, because for 20 years you've been getting on a plane and flying to Washington. Yeah. Most of your life, that's been your, you know, at least your public identity, and now you're Tim Ryan citizen. I'm having a ball. Honestly, like I'm coaching my it's been weird. The transition has been weird because you're just so you're always so geared up towards a campaign or what, you know, it was on the appropriations committee. So where are the bills and where are they at and what do we have in them? And like you're home, you know, and the, the honeydew list gets a little longer. <laughs> I'm coaching my eighth uh, eight year olds uh, basketball team and flag football team. That's been like a hoot just to kind of be there with him. It's it's just been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It's been a whole new thing. I'll ask you in a bit about what you see next, but I'm sure you must have glanced at the festivities when the new Congress was sworn <laughs> in. Uh, I spent many hours sitting on a stool in the CNN studios uh, watching that stuff. What, what was your sense of what happened there? And what does it portend for the next couple of years? I mean, you know all these people very, very well. Yeah. I was actually in Florida on like a break and I was like, well, I'm not checking my phone, but I had to check it once a day. I just had to see what was going on. Well, Disney world has nothing on this. (laughs) this (laughs) I had to see the shit show. And so, yeah, I I think it's just going to be a continuation of kind of what we think is going to happen. It's the debt ceiling. It's the appropriations process. It's what lever can we pull to cause chaos um, and that'll happen through the committee process with Hunter Biden and that whole thing. And now now the files, the uh, classified material and then the, the big stuff on the House floor will, you know, it'll be it'll be conflict and it'll be chaos, I think. Yeah, I want to ask you about McCarthy, but just as, since you raised the documents thing, what's your what's your read on it? I think you take full responsibility, say it was wrong and, and try to move on. Like you can't, I don't think there's any way to sugarcoat it. There's no way to, 
you know, soften it, you think it's wrong, take responsibility and try to move on. You know, the Biden I know has a lot of really, really great qualities, and you know him as well. That one is not one that comes easy to him. (laughs) You know, he's not a guy who, by his nature, stands up there and says, yeah, this was wrong. This was a problem. We made a mistake. Mm Mm-hmm. I get it. I mean, you know, you've been in there and I've, I've been in there to some degree, but like you, you know, you got people coming at you all the time for all kinds of he stuff. He must have seen thousands of documents when he was the VP. He was read into everything. He really was, as advertised, someone who was deeply involved in in what the president was doing. I could totally see how these things happen, you mm-hmm. know, but uh, I also know from being on the inside that once the lawyers get involved, no, they are never encouraging you to come out and be forthright and hmm. say it, tell the whole story and, mm-hmm. until the legal stuff is done. So, I mean, I think he's sort of between a rock and a hard place, but that doesn't obviate the fact that you can say no one should have classified documents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't say it's not a big deal. No, but like I said, you know, that's that's always been a hard one. Not a guy who admits mistakes or failure, Mm -hmm. but uh, sometimes it's the right thing to do. So Kevin McCarthy, tell me about him. Oh, I bet. I just think he's chicken shit, like between me and you. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I won't tell anybody. Yeah. I mean, I just, I had this experience with him that I think illustrates the kind of person he is, right? We were going through the whole um, mask thing on the floor and it was in the middle of COVID and I chaired the legislative branch appropriations committee that funds the Capitol police. Yeah, right. I remember because after the January 6th thing, you were right in the middle of it. Yeah. And so it also funds the attending physician. And, and so like McCarthy was up on the house floor, minority leader, and he starts going after the attending physician of the house of representatives. Like Dr. Moynihan, who's like the greatest guy. He's your doctor, you know. <laughs> he organize. He takes care of the members of Congress, and this guy uses his position as minority leader on the House floor to publicly trash the attending physician. Who? What's the attending physician going to do? Go to the House floor and respond to this? Or he like, trashed him for recommending that people wear that masks. we wear masks because you have four hundred thirty-five people coming from four hundred thirty-five different places around the country. Some are hot spots, yeah. some aren't. Yeah, and, and who are also meeting with people all the time and governing, and you know the whole. So it's like it was just like that's Kevin McCarthy. Like he will he will take a shot. He will he will punch down. He will punch down at someone who can't defend themselves. And I but just he think did that, it, obviously. He didn't do it for sport. He did it because he thought he could score some points. Right. That The cost of a public servant who's a doctor, like, really, you're going to, of all the issues you can bring up, you're going to go after this guy. I just think it illustrates the kind of guy he is. You famously challenged Nancy Pelosi for speaker back in 2017. But I, you told me when we were on the phone recently that you had a you have a good relationship with her now, which is unusual because she's, you know, she's tough. <laughs> you know, yeah. she doesn't, not a forgive and forget <laughs> kind of person. But the thing that I thought about when I watched what was going on on the floor during that speaker vote was, man, could you imagine something like this happening <laughs> on the floor of the house when Nancy Pelosi was speaker of the house? Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, 
talk about the contrast between the way she approached that job and the way you expect he's going to approach that job. Yeah, no shot. I mean, like the, the tails, the tails wagging the dog and that never happened when Nancy Pelosi was speaker. And I remember going back to the war, you know, going back to Dennis Kucinich and there were some progressives who, you know, once we took over in 06, January of 07, we wanted to get out of the war. And, you know, you couldn't get out fast enough for some of the progressives. They weren't going to vote for getting out of Iraq in six months or nine months, whatever the, whatever the number was at that point. And I just remember seeing Nancy Pelosi on the floor talking to these progressive members and they all voted for it. They all voted for the compromise and they all voted for the compromise on the Affordable Care Act and on everything that, that we did together because of her. I got to tell you, Tim. The day after, you'll remember this on the Affordable Care Act, Democrats lost the Ted Kennedy seat in the Senate, and he was the 60th vote in the U.S. Senate. So now it's clear you can't really revise the Affordable Care Act. And the House hated the version that the Senate sent over. A lot of progressives hated it. Mm -hmm. And we were 20 votes short. And it was clear the House was going to have to accept the Senate version with whatever changes you could make through reconciliation, mm-hmm. which only required a simple majority in the Senate. And just watching Pelosi do her thing over a period of weeks, meeting with every member and figuring out what their bottom line was mm-hmm. and what was possible and getting everybody on board was like a master class. Mm-hmm in legislative leadership. And, you know, when you deal with an institution as difficult as uh, as the United States Congress, that's an art. No question. No question. She knew members of Congress better than they knew themselves. But yeah, she's um, tough. And McCarthy's the complete opposite of that. You know, McCarthy is the one who, as we saw throughout the however many votes, how could he appease yeah. the the extremists? A friend of mine who you know said that he is a concierge, mm-hmm. not a not a leader. Totally. And I think that's sort of how he approaches it. But now he's there and that's gonna have concerts. So what do you think the possibility is of members on both sides forcing the action, moderate members on both sides kind of forcing the action and not seating the veto to the tail that's wagging the dog i think they're gonna try but you know they're up for election again next year and they don't know none of them want a primary now they're being called chairman right and so they don't want to give that up and so they're not going to risk a primary against the red meat crowd and sacrifice their position and i think this has been the problem with the republican party is they continue to kick the can down the road hoping that there's you know something breaks and they'll be able to maintain their power and yet things will break. But I just, I don't see it happening. I just, I don't see it happening. And I don't see them being able to take on in any significant way. This is, of course, the problem of the Republican Party because, and it's a, you know, Trump is obviously at the center of it, but they have, there's a whole different world voting in their primaries. I think more honestly than Democrats, I mean, you would have a better sense of this than I do. Republicans like to say, well, you know, it's just like you guys in the squad and all of that stuff. Doesn't feel that way to me. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. I mean, you have to really, as a Democrat at this point, like it's got to be a really egregious kind of violation of the values of the party and 
whatever. As a Republican, they're just like, you know, Charlie Chris hugged Barack Obama. Like, let's go get him. You know what I mean? Like in the middle of a like a complete economic collapse. Yeah. Well, let's go after him. That kind of thing. I think that's happening more and more. And it could be one interview you've done with the wrong person or you took a picture with the wrong person. Like that could that they're looking for that stuff. I said a million times uh, here and uh, on the, my other podcast, uh, Hacks on Tap, that you were running the best campaign in the country. I also said you, the best campaign in the country may not be good enough <laughs> in the state of Ohio. And I'm I thought you, you sent me that. I was like, screw this guy. <laughs> yeah. I wish. Listen, I wish. I, I wish I had been wrong. Yeah, I wish I had been wrong. But I want to talk about why you were in a position to run such a race. And it really goes to your story. I want to talk about growing up in Niles, Ohio, in the Youngstown area. Niles, Ohio, where you are the second most famous politician who ever came from (laughs) Niles, Ohio, right? You know who the first one was. I do. I do. William McKinley. Exactly. Well, yours ended up better than his. So far. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, he he got assassinated. but So that's on your side of the ledger. But your dad left when you were quite young. Mm-hmm. I read that you didn't, you never, he you left when you were seven. You never had contact with him again. We reconnected. Oh, is that right? Yeah, we reconnect. When I got married, my wife, you know, to her credit, kind of called him up and said, "What? Well, this is insanity. You need to know your son and your sons. And uh, that was the process. And so now we're, we're like rock solid. That's so great. It, it's great. It's a great story. Yeah, it yeah. really is. Why didn't you speak before? That? It was just kind of an acrimonious divorce, and and like, you know, I'm going to be fifty, and like people my generation now like handle it so much different. Like, you know, 1979, it was like a death match. You mm-hmm. know, that's that's just how things went down back then. It's like a steel cage match between your parents, and you're going, "What the fuck is going on here?" Like, so you I mean, check, you, choose, you choose sides. You got to pick a side, you know. And uh, for whatever reason, you know, being that age, you know, you don't have quite the relationship with your dad that you have with your mom. Of course, yeah. Um, and then there were some ups and downs along the way, but that was the house, and my grandparents lived two blocks down and our lady of Mount Carmel Catholic school was one block away. So that was like, that was, where were I going? You know, and the neighbor kids were our best friends growing up. So, yeah, I mean, but it was all, you know, it was kind of very working class. Like I went to Catholic school. Mm-hmm. I went to our lady of Mount Carmel Catholic school. I went to John F. Kennedy um, Catholic high school and played sports a whole nine yards, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like an, elite. hopefully 10 yards, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a, an elite Catholic school. It was a working class Catholic school, like back in the day where like the, you know, the dad would work a couple extra shifts a month to pay for the tuition. And the tuition wasn't crazy, but it was more, you know, it was a choice that you made to send your kid to a Catholic school. But so I was going to school with, you know, guys that worked in the steel mills kids and the guys that worked at the auto plants kids and the suppliers kid, you know, and just working class. And that's kind of how we grew up. And that the, the, and your grandfather was a steel worker. He was worker. a steel worker. Yeah. Uh, your mom's family is Italian. Yeah. I mean, everybody hears Ryan and they hear and they think Irish. Yeah. But really, you were raised, raised Italian. Italian. 100%. Tell me about your grandparents. and Yeah. My, they lived two blocks down. My grandmother had, there were six of her generation. And so that was the family, the Gueras, which is now kind of a more of a Latino name or Mexican name. Um, 
uh, Guerra in Spanish means war, but they were all the Guerras and that was the crew. So, yeah, I mean, it was just and it was it was bocce. It was picnics. It was Sunday dinner. It was, you know, pasta Tuesdays, Thursdays and Sundays, pasta fazool on Friday. You know, me and my brother became quarterbacks and my grandmother read an, an article on whatever you that fish, carb up. fish fish was good for your brain oh is that right and we were the quarterbacks uh-huh. so we had to have our brains working so we started having fish on friday before the game I see. <laughs> but she would like my mom too like we would have you know we'd have a, a scapular on you know and we would have like we would have a cross that would be taped to our thigh pad. Hmm. You know, we would have something taped to our shoulder pads. Like we were we were decked out. We were ready. And how much how much of a role did the church play in your life? It was big. It was big. I was an altar boy, you know, and came up and my confirmation uh, sponsors a priest uh, here at Notre Dame, Father Ron Nuzzi. Um, we always had priests over for. Like the holidays, they would come and join, you know, our family. Um, one who left, who was a big influence on the family. He would, every time he was back in town, he'd stop over and have a scotch or two and, you know, give me and my brother 20 bucks and like, you know, look out for us. And mm-hmm. so the church was a big part of that. And I always, I, I always credit that as, as my later development into like meditation and yoga yeah. and that kind of thing. It's a huge thing. You wrote a whole book about mm-hmm. it. Mindfulness. Yeah. And so I think it goes, to me, it goes back to like, just kind of that, that, that spiritual dimension of what, what don't we see here and what's going on there, I think led to a lot of my curiosity about some of these other, you know, world religions and things like that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the working class nature of, I mean, in some ways where you grew up, Youngstown was like ground zero for the economic shifts mm-hmm. in our country. And you came up at a time when, you know, the Democratic Party sort of embraced free trade, globalism, and so on as mm-hmm. a way to lift not just the American economy, but world economies to build alliances around economic issues and mm-hmm. so on. But there were regions of the country that paid dearly for that. And yours was probably right up at the, mm-hmm. toward the top of the list. You had steel mills around you and manufacturing General Electric. Mm-hmm. Talk about what the change in the economy meant to your community. It's just the loss. Like we didn't see any of the upside that everyone kept talking about the the benefits of globalization, comparative advantage, all that stuff I later learned about in school and the economics classes. It's like, well, nobody did anything like there wasn't a response to the shifts. And, and we literally had factories in Warren, Ohio. Delphi was a, was the supplier to Mm -hmm. um, general motors literally would, Go after NAFTA would go to the Maquiladoras right over the border, build a huge factory. Our jobs left, jobs there grew, and our people had to go over the border and literally train, train them. them. Yeah, <laughs> that we're going to take like their digging job. your own grave. It was just the most. Yeah. I mean, you guys, you know, the 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 ad you guys ran in in uh, in '08. With, with the guy from Toledo, I think, yes, right? It was yeah. like that. It was that, that kind of yeah, yeah. that kind of sentiment, and it just instilled a level of betrayal, anger, cynicism to the broader, you know, electorate, and then that got stuck to the Democrats. Like yeah. I think I thought one of Trump's best lines he had in sixteen 
was when he um he'd say her husband to Hillary, her husband passed NAFTA. You can put her in office. Mm-hmm. And like all the working class guys in Youngstown are going, yeah, that doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> you know, um, as I look back over the last, I mean, I've been at this for quite a while. As I look back over that transition, and I worked for the AFL-CIO in 2000 uh, against uh, admitting China to the World Trade Organization and according them that status. Mm-hmm. When I look back at it, the two things that I think probably did the most damage to the, because I'm not against trade. I, I actually believe in trade, but we had to have a plan mm-hmm. for these communities more than saying we're going to give you trade adjustment assistance and train you for jobs that somewhere. Because mm-hmm. it wasn't just about having a job. It was about having a job here. Right. It was about having a job in the community that's been our community for years. It's about having middle-class jobs. So the failure to have a a real plan, some would disdain it as industrial, what's the word I'm looking policy. for? Yeah, industrial industrial policy. Yeah, industrial policy. But we sort of owed it to those communities. And I live here in the Midwest. And, you know, your community is just one of many, many communities that saw these changes and depopulation. I know Youngstown has, what, 60% fewer people or something yeah. today? Yeah. So uh, that was one thing. The second thing was when we came to office. I mean, I will defend what we did because the, the consequence of not doing it would have been so catastrophic. But the whole uh, Wall Street bailout mm-hmm. perception. So, you know, we. And I felt the same way. I voted for it, but yeah. I felt the same way. I'm like, this is some bullshit. Jeez, yeah. L. Pete's. Believe me, I work for a president who, <laughs> he, you know, he said, I didn't come here to bail out some fat cats on Wall Street. And for eight years, all I heard from was from the masters of the universe was he called us names, you know. But the fact is that <laughs> uh, to allow the financial system to collapse would have been a global depression. Yeah. But that's hard to explain to someone who lost their home, who lost their job. Like, why are they getting bailouts when they help contribute to the problem? Mm-hmm. And I'm stuck here to fend for myself. And mm-hmm. I think those two things are probably the things that did the most damage to the relationship between the Democratic Party and people in communities like yours. Yeah, I agree. And no one went to jail. No one like it. How did all this happen? No one got punished. And I'm I'm still stuck. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, back to the show. 
there's just this idea of being on a treadmill and you just can't get off. You're going too fast to jump off, uh, you know, and, and, but you can't stop. There's no way off of this thing. And I just, I see these people and I saw them, you know, around the state yes. campaigning. And it's just, they're grinding. They're just, they're trying to do everything right. And they're working in, you know, some glass shop. Uh, you know, the, the manufacturers glass in the middle of Ohio and they're making 22 bucks an hour, which isn't great, but it's, it's not bad, but you, you know, you got to work six days a week or you got to work seven days a week. If you want your kid to have a car, if you want your kid to go to college, or if you want to, you know, you put the pool in or whatever, like whatever's going to bring your family some joy, you're the one going to that steel mill and grinding it out. And your spouse is probably home, you know, keeping things together too. And I just think doing that for 20 years or 30 years, like at some point you're like, screw everybody. Like I'm not voting. These Democrats are full of crap. Especially you know. when, when the place where you're grinding it out goes away, you know, but then you're really stuck. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you've pointed out and your family may be one of them, but Oftentimes, people who are working in those factories and in those steel mills were third generation. Mm, yeah, and this is how this was sort of the key to a middle class life. So we talked about this chasm between rural and small town voters and Democrats, metropolitan Democrats, where the sort of power base of the party is shifting. And we talked about economics, but you talk about culture. Now, I wanted to ask you, you know, you talked about your own, uh, how faith helped frame you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seems like faith is part of what's at the middle of that. You have an increasingly secular, and there are bases of the Democratic Party. There is a kind of more secular, growing, sort of professional, progressive base. Talk about that. And how, what do we do about that? <laughs> uh, well, we've seen a drop off of African-American voters. We've seen a drop off of Latino voters, both kind of faith centered communities, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's, you know, Baptist or AME or Catholic on the on the Latino side. So I, and I think this has also been exacerbated by Republicans leaning into this. The Dobbs decision probably had some impact, although I think it netted out against them. Mm-hmm. You would know that. You were running in that environment. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, an emphasis on what's taught in schools and tuition tax credits. And yeah. uh, I see the governor of uh, Iowa wants to use her surplus, her pandemic surplus, to give $7,500 tuition tax credits to anyone who wants to send their kids to private schools. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like that's part of what's at the core of this it's not just economics yeah yeah no question um i think it's part of the framing of democrats are not like us right the people who go to church every day you probably see it in the polling of how mm-hmm. many times a month you go to church Yeah, the less you go the more receptive you might be right so you know i think it's got to be a part of the conversation and i don't think it has to be like we got to match you dogma for dogma you know it's just like appreciate the mystery of life, you know, appreciate that there, you know, there may be a higher power and that there's an intelligence out in the world. And when I went to Catholic schools, I told you it's very working class. There was no like 
nun driving the abortion argument into your head. It was about service. It was about the social mm-hmm. gospel. It was about being a good person. It was about helping in the community. When I was went to Kennedy High School, I was the quarterback of the football team. Like the football team had to put their jerseys on and go to the grade schools or go out into the community and do service. It was senior service was a part of the curricula at school. So you were a leader, so you put your football jersey on because those kids you're going to see are going to look up to you, and you have a responsibility to, to be a leader. I think one of the uh, one of the things that's driving it the other way is the um, politicization of the evangelical community and the power that they've leveraged. That's how we got the court we got. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how we got the Dobbs decision, and it doesn't really reflect, even among people of faith, it doesn't reflect the broad consensus of the American people. But on the other end, Tim, it strikes me that all these things, whether it's economics, whether it's faith, conversations have to be had that start from a basis of respect. Right. And, you know, one of the things you did was travel all over your state, you know, red counties, you know, which are more numerous than (laughs) blue ones in uh, Ohio. Yeah. And honestly, in the country, uh, you know, Trump won like 82% of the red ca- of, of the counties in the country. Mm-hmm. Showing up matters. Showing respect matters. Yeah. It doesn't doesn't take much, you yeah. know. And it's that that respect and it's it's so fear-based. And this is what I think guys like you, guys like me who have a microphone, like we've got to like cut through all of this. It's fear. It's fear that then turns into anger. And it's fear. It's economic fear. Mm-hmm. It's it's fear that the country's going in the wrong direction. It's globalization. It's automation. Mm-hmm. It's trade. It's, it's like fear it's, of losing what you have. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I always think about the discussion on climate. We're feeling the effects, and we have to do something about it. But I also, you know, it's an existential crisis. But if you've done a job and your family has been doing the same job for three generations and that's how you support a good middle class living, losing that job is an existential crisis too. Yeah. And that has to be understood. That has to be the basis on which we have conversation. Right. And that's statecraft comes in, right? like leadership comes in and saying, okay, here is our problem. It's all of our problem, and we're not just going to jackpot this guy in West Virginia or Southern Ohio who's been living in a coal mine, exposed himself to black lung because he loves his kids. That's why he goes into that coal mine every day. Like, let's not demean the guy that he's dumb or doesn't understand the global. And and I will tell you, I think most Democrats understand that. There are some that don't. But I think, like you said, like the leaders have to say, that's the kind of like these big kind of structural issues. We've got to open up the door to have a conversation. And in the Republicans, we're going to make it rough because they're not there. Many of them are not interested. So you may have to go outside of the political world. Mm -hmm. But let's begin that national conversation. Put it on Mm C-SPAN. Like, let's do it. Like, are we going to fix this or not? Because as the clock ticks, it's going to become harder and harder on climate, on race, on all of these issues to actually fix the problem. So you, your, your interest in politics stemmed from a, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong about this, from an encounter with Jim Traficant, yeah. who was the uh, congressman from your area, one of the most Say bizarrely it. colorful figures in American <laughs> politics who and I, I don't say this with i'm not casting judgment but he finished his 
his life basically in a penitentiary. Mm-hmm. I'm not casting judgment because I'm from Chicago and we've seen a few of, <laughs> of those here. <laughs> but but tell me about that, about what, because it wasn't like you grew up in a house where they said, hey, you ought to think about politics. So my my grandmother worked at the courthouse. So my grandfather was a steel worker. My grandmother worked in kind of administration, but she started off, I think she worked for the sheriff back in the day, and then she worked for the clerk of courts, and then she retired. My mom took her job in Trumbull County, which is just north of um, north of Youngstown. So every Sunday, the conversation, like my Aunt Mary died, so Uncle Fred started coming over for Sunday dinner. So mm-hmm. now it's my grandparents, Uncle Fred, me, my brother, and my mom. And then Trafficking had a TV show that he would do through his member account by TV back in the day. So he was always on. So the conversation every Sunday was around judges, who was doing what, you know, what judge ran, what judge this, what judge got a DUI, you know, the whole thing. What traffic and say on TV? And then who do the Browns play? Mm-hmm. Like that was the conversation every week. So it was a very political conversation. He was a quarterback too. And he was a quarterback. Yeah, at, he played at, I guess he, he played with Mike Ditka, at, Chicago. At Pitt, yeah. At, yeah. Yeah. Um, Marty Schottenheimer. Like he played with some big time players. Some, some, yeah. And he was, he, he, he had some stories. So he came, he got invited. One of the moms invited him to speak at our football banquet because he went to Catholic school too. He went to Cardinal Mooney, which is a big football school. Yeah, and so he wanted to see the quarterback. Huh? So I'm at basketball practice. And we were running late. And so I get there. My mom's there. My mom says, you better go over and say hello to the congressman because he keeps asking where the quarterback is. I was like, no, Ken. He's like, yeah, you better go say hello. So I go up and, you know, dinner was late. He said, sit down. So I sat there for 45 minutes and listened to him tell stories about Mike Ditka, Marty Schottenheimer, who at that point was probably like coaching the Browns or just head coach. So like he had played with all these guys and, um, I just found him. He was as charismatic as yeah. anybody I ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. And Brock, Bill Clinton, like mm-hmm. this guy was like, you could just feel his charisma. I'd never, never experienced anything like it. And so I fell in love with the guy. And then he said, well, call me. And I went on to play college football, blew my knee out and was like, what am I going to do now? I'm not going to be the Cleveland Browns quarterback anymore. I better figure out what I'm going to do. Oh, yeah. Trafficking gave me his card. I'll call him. Did an internship. And that was that. Started working for him for two years until I went to law school, and that's where I got a really good political education. So you went, you you came home. You, you were twenty six years old. You ran for the state senate. Mm-hmm. First of all, what did you learn in the state senate? Not a whole lot. <laughs> Don't be a Democrat in the state senate in Ohio. That's <laughs> good. Well, that's an important lesson. <laughs> we had twelve then, and I think there's nine now. Are there any young people out there listening? Yeah, go to Chicago or something. Yeah, and run. but. Um, then he's indicted and he's expelled from the house. So I want to ask you how you process this. Okay, he had been indicted. Actually, he was the sheriff of Mahoning County, mm-hmm. and he had been indicted in the eighties. Represented himself, speaking to your point about charisma, mm-hmm. and got acquitted. Mm-hmm. Now he's indicted again for bribery and other things that have to do with how he used his campaign funds. But they expel him from the house. Here's your kind of your guy your angel yeah you know and i don't know maybe a father figure i don't mm-hmm. really know how you thought about him very much yeah very much in in those terms so he 
he got indicted. We kept hearing he was going to get indicted. I was actually in the Senate for one year. So I'm in for a year, but that whole year, it's like trafficking's going to get indicted. He even was saying he was going to get indicted. He went down to the FBI office and started screaming at him, you guys going to indict me or what? Like he was just getting so you know paranoid about the whole thing. We should, by the way, describe the fact the guy had the most flamboyant and bizarre head, uh, hair, mm-hmm. a hair piece, I assume. That's what we found out when he went to prison. Yes. No one knew. Yeah, so. well, I don't know, man. It was piled up there in a bouffant. But everyone that, said you would not do a, a toupee like that. Yes, like if you true. had a toupee, it would not be Well, that. he didn't overpay. I'll say that, I hope. Uh, but uh, but anyway, so uh, he, he said he was going to be indicted. He went down, he confronted them. And then now I'm in year two of a four-year term. So I'm midterm. I'm 29 years old obviously got the political bug, just won a race in that media market, in the Youngstown media market that ended up being a big high profile Senate race. So he's going to get indicted. I'm hearing through mutual friends, like he's not going to run in the Democratic primary because the trial's coming and he can't do both. He'll win the trial and then he'll run as an independent in the fall. That was his plan. But they had him dead to rights. I mean, there was no way he was getting out of this. It was like pretty clear. So I was just like, you know, these seats come. I've been around long enough to know. Before you make the, before you talk about the decision, how did you feel about him? And heartbreaking, about- heartbroken, heartbroken. Like you knew what happened back in the day, mm-hmm. and when you grow up, maybe in Chicago, Youngstown, you're like, yeah, back in the day, right? That's what they did, you know. And did he do it or not do it or whatever? Were they trying to set him up? There was all kinds of games going on. He got off, eh, and then he became congressman. So the community clearly approved of whatever or like looked the other way but like i was telling my grandma when we were talking about this i go he wouldn't do it again like he's not that crazy he like got out he got out of it like even if he did do it he got out of it like second chance he would never do something stupid again well turns out like he basically like the world changed and yeah, he didn't. That is so deal. much the story. I mean, there are a there are a number of very uh, venerable figures in <laughs> Chicago politics who now who had eluded the you know uh, prosecution for decades and decades and decades, who played the game the way the game was played when they came into politics, and now you don't you can't do that. Yeah. You know, you, you're going to get caught. You're going to get prosecuted. You so you decided to run that this was an opportunity. He didn't win the trial. He ended up running against you. From jail. Yeah. I was actually in D.C. at the Democratic Club watching his final floor speech when they expelled him. And, uh, yeah, it was <laughs> it was wild. And he went down, and I ended up winning. And Was it hard to run against? I mean, I know you didn't run you didn't set out to run against him was it hard when he decided he was going to run against you you know you have those emotions that you're you know this was this was the guy who gave me my shot like he he took me on as an intern in dc he gave me my first job uh so i was you know loyal to 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 some extent and um but you know stuff did he ever communicate with you no no uh -uh. he uh I, I heard he was mad at me that I ran against him. <laughs> as crazy as that is. And then he got back out seven years later and he ran again. Yeah. And it was 
you know, it was like an old sports movie where the guy comes comes back and he tries to, you know, throw the ball again and he just yeah. can't do it. You know, what was interesting about him was that he um, he's virulently anti-immigration. He was uh, strongly anti-abortion, and you were as well when you entered the mm-hmm. Congress. I assume you 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 entered and and you've talked about this. You you had a A rating from the. NRA at the beginning. I, I, mm-hmm. I assume he probably did mm-hmm. too, and probably reflected the community there. Mm-hmm. For sure. Catholic, old school, a lot of hunters. You know, just look back at like the years I worked for him, which would be 90. I think I got out of school in 95. So 95, 96, 97. Like that is just politically like another century ago. It just seems like so different now. And then, yeah, I mean, you know, I was younger, I was 29, you know, and then obviously had wanted to go out and was very curious. And so ended up meeting, um, you know, women who had abortions and having those conversations. And so, you know, people say, why'd you change your position on these? I said, because because of what was going on around me in the world. Yeah. How many Sandy Hooks can you watch? And like NRA is not coming to the table. Like, come to the table, fix this. Like, no one wants to take your shotgun. And they wouldn't, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't. So, it so good. So, you know, shine some light on this because the people who don't want to come to the table generally aren't hunters uh, so much. I mean, they may be, they may feel like they're threatened, but it feels like the impetus for this, first of all, I think the gun manufacturers have quite a bit to do yeah. with it and fund the NRA and so on. But it also is tied up with this sort of ideological battle that's going on and the sense that somehow people need these weapons as a hedge against the overreach of government. At least there's among the really activist. Yeah. I mean, am I reading that wrong? Yeah, no, that's true. It's like, what are you going to do when they pull the tank up? I mean, like, what are you going to do with your gun? You know, I mean, to me, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's part of the culture. And that's really, you know, what I want to talk more about moving forward is like this is a cultural problem like the politics is downstream of culture it's not upstream of culture and it's reflection it's a reflection of the culture and the zero-sum game it's like either the nra wins or you know Mm -hmm. brady gun reform or you know gabby giffords group wins it's like no it's like that's that's just the mentality that we are locked into right now and it's either or and i think you know, in a lot of ways, the Democrats are on on the wrong side of that. Like just just ge- a general view of an opinion of the party. I think the Republicans are too. Quite frankly, I mean, it's just like people are done with like the political parties. Like they just think they're both antiquated and and haven't evolved. But that's that's a culture problem that we have. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. It feels like 
when you come down to an election between a Republican and Democrat, and you experience this in Ohio, whatever your feelings about particular candidates, there are a high number of people who sort of just go tribal Mm -hmm. and choose the red team or the blue team because that is culturally, they think that's their community. Yeah, totally. So I'll give you an example. A woman ran two years ago in Ohio for justice of the Supreme Court, Jennifer Bruner. She was secretary of state back in the day. Great candidate, smart, articulate, like just wonderful. She wins. And I think it was in Mansfield. This guy was telling me a couple weeks ago. She won Mansfield with like 52 percent of the vote. So Democrats started winning Supreme Court races because you didn't have to be affiliated. You right. didn't have to put DRR by your name. So she won. We won a two, two or three other seats. So fast forward another year, she's going to run in November, this past November with me. She's going to run for chief justice of the Supreme Court. So we we're trying to take over the court, at least get our, you know, get a foothold somewhere in Ohio politics. And she just won. But they changed the law and she had to put a D by her name. Mansfield, Ohio. 31 percent. Same candidate, same bench, same issues, same woman, same everything. D by her name down 22 points from where she ran a couple years ago. You know, let me me ask you about that because I know someone else from Mansfield named Sherrod Brown, Mm -hmm. and he's up in two years. What are his chances, particularly in a presidential year when people are going to be choosing between a Republican and Democrat? For And I know Sherrod is a superb politician Mm -hmm. who's survived, you know, many, many elections in a difficult environment, although the last one was maybe a little closer than Mm -hmm. what what would you be thinking if you were him? I think he's going to win. Do you? Because we in in my race, we got the crossover appeal like we got we got Republicans to vote lost by six, which is less than the D.R balance of the state. Yeah. So we got a ton of Republicans to come over and every event I had to be Republicans were there and they were voting for you. All my friends are voting for you. I'm like, we're going to win. We're going to win. There's no way. I spoke with you shortly before that. Yeah. It felt like everywhere we went, even in the Southern rural parts of the state. So, but what happened was, you know, we didn't have the resources to do everything. So we had to carry our message. We had to carry the contrast message. We put some money into field, but we, we needed more money to get our base voters out. And we outperformed the head of the top of the ticket for governor by, by 20 points. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like you, yeah, we thought if we could get it to 17, 18, we could maybe do it, but she lost by 27 points. Yeah. And so that made it, that made it very, very difficult. Sherrod, I think can get the crossover, but he'll have the presidential turnout on this in his favor. So I think there's a there's a good chance Sherrod can win this thing. There are 24 Democratic seats up in the Senate in uh, 2024. Three of them are in states that Donald Trump won, uh, Ohio, Montana, and West Virginia. So if you're just an odd, you know, I mean, conventional wisdom has been taking it in the shorts lately, so it doesn't necessarily <laughs> be, the, it's not necessarily the thing to cite, but you'd have to say, um, you know, the odds of a Republican Senate in 2024 are, are not bad. Yeah, not bad. I mean, and depending on the economy and what's going on in China and COVID and, I mean, the, the energy issue, was, I think, is going to be going to be a big issue. Mm-hmm. You know, now even like the, all the money that, that went out into the, some of the renewable projects, 
aren't getting online. Europe, coal coming back into fashion in, in Europe and Asia. So, like, what's the what's the energy piece going to be like, too? Mm-hmm. You know? Which is a big issue in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Western PA, like mm-hmm. a lot of natural gas industry in, in Western PA. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of different variables around it. And really, just I think that, the, you know, the president has got to articulate a big vision for the country. Like, that to me is like what the missing piece of like, we never say like the why, you know, we, we just, we just, we're always in like the, the, the Jimmy Carter guy had, he's like, Democrats show up, you know, to a, a you know, political debate, you know, or a gunfight with the 10 point policy plan. Mm-hmm. These guys are shooting at you. What's the why? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing the Inflation Reduction Act? Why are we doing the infrastructure bill? You know, why? And it's because the United States of America is an essential country in the world. Mm-hmm. It's, it is. It does. Freedom is like not a cliche. It fucking matters. Because if you look at China and Russia, clearly, you know, forced abortions, invading Ukraine, ethnic cleansing, no free press, no free, like that's, that's where we're at. It's either us or them. At yeah. This point, you, know, you know, we, we had Tony Blinken here last week and we talked a little bit about this. You look at a poll of like the most important issues, you know, foreign policy, like dead last, uh, you ask people what the, uh, uh, they want to cut the budget, right? I want to talk to you about that in a second, this whole debt ceiling thing. Mm-hmm. But um, And you say, well, what should we cut? Foreign aid. Well, how much of the budget do you think that is? Well, probably 25%. <laughs> and it's under 1%. Yeah. Probably should be much higher. But make the case to your neighbors. I want to make the case for why. Why, why is it, does it matter to them in their lives? that we are engaged in the world the the hurdle is we are now a generation of americans who didn't serve in world war ii who didn't go through the depression who didn't see their lives connected to the broader framework of civilization and so that makes it very very difficult but i would just say look at the gas prices you know, yeah. like, you know, Russia invades Ukraine. You probably don't know where hardly either of those countries are, but yet you're paying four bucks in gas. Uh, you know, our jobs are, you know, a lot of those manufacturing jobs are in China now. You know, like we have got to have a strategy on how we deal with the world. And this gets back to what my wife talks about all the time, civics education, like really understanding, you know, what the, the, the role of the United States, the role of the democracy um, but I would just say, like, we want to we want to build stuff here and we want to export it to our friends. And so we need to spend a little bit of money making friends. I saw a story today about uh, Governor Yunkin in Virginia. I don't know if you saw this story, mm-hmm. uh, who's rumored to be thinking about running for president. There was a plant that was going to a Ford plant that was coming, a battery plant mm-hmm. to rural Virginia, 2,500 jobs. He said he will not accept the the plant because uh, it is a partnership with some Chinese concern. And I was wondering what you would think about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, let me just editorialize for a second. <laughs> say, if ever there was evidence that this guy was thinking of running for president, I think this is it. Because, as you know, you ran hard against China in, mm-hmm. in many ways. There's currency in that. 
But when you're governor of a state, and especially when you're looking at rural areas, that's a pretty big number, 2,500 jobs. So wh- how do you analyze that? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously the the protections, the, the intellectual property protections, security protections, all that go without saying that all needs to be in place. But we, we want other countries investing into the United States and creating jobs here. Yeah. That's what we want, you know, and I think that's, to, you know, to me, it's, it's not us shipping our jobs there. It's them moving their jobs here. And as long as the intellectual property and stuff like that is protected uh, and there's no security breach, which, you know, that's GM would be very uh, motivated to make sure that doesn't happen, too. So I'll be all for it. I mentioned the debt ceiling. Mm hmm. You were there for the Tea Party stuff and so on, the idea that spending, and I think people associate, particularly in the middle of the country, they associate spending with money for someone else that they pay for, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, whether that's true or or not. Um, but uh, it'd be interesting, and I don't understand why someone doesn't just say, okay, lay out all the spending cuts you want. Let's see it. Put the put the list in front of us because mm-hmm. i think the idea of cutting spending is a lot more popular than actually cutting spending yeah no that'd be a great strategy you should text our game and tell them yeah no <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's see what you got yeah because even even now like you know with the challenges in defense like with with hypersonics and with all these new technologies that are coming out we are behind on a lot of this stuff we are yeah whether we like it you've or not. talked about this a lot about yeah. that, that we got to be we got to rev up the technology yeah. machine here. And part of it, too, just to take like a step back, part of it is like you have to like and Democrats do a terrible job of this and Republicans just want to cut. But like our government is antiquated and old and it doesn't work like, you know, like you if I wanted to order a book right now. Right. If I want to get Axelrod's book, I'd get on my phone and with Please feel free to do that, by the way. <laughs> I'd, I'd be on Amazon and within three days it's sitting in my front porch. My dogs are barking because the UPS guy's there. Yeah. Right. If you're in the middle of a pandemic in Ohio and you want to get your unemployment check because your business is going under and the person you work for, three months, four months. Like we that was the incoming we were taking in a congressional office was all about the state government not being able to administer their services. You know, and it could be the same with getting your driver's license. It could be like, who wants to interface with any level of government right now in our society? The answer is nobody does. And so I just think like we've got to have a, a an era of reform. Like, how do we have all this technology, all these metrics, all this ability to like move data one way or the other to increase the ability to serve the public in a way that... It, reflects 2022 you know 23 i mean i only spent two years in washington you you spent 20 but it is hard to move bureaucracy it is hard to get people to say we're going to do this a completely different way mm-hmm. i mean i tried at one point to uh, encourage the merger of some agencies i mean and man I was set upon because every one of these agencies has a constituency and those mm-hmm. folks organize and and it's it makes it very, very hard. So you mentioned Hakeem. There's a whole new leadership team, mm-hmm. all of them colleagues of yours, uh, probably friends of yours. Mm-hmm. Tell me what this transition means in, in the House and how 
how hopeful are you for them? I feel very good about it. I'm I'm really glad it happened. I you know obviously I you know thought given Speaker Pelosi's talent and ability inside the caucus and that we talked about earlier, just such a sophisticated operator. I mean, in a league of her own. Yeah, in a league of her own. Yeah. be yeah. very clear. The about historic that. people call her historic figure. She's historic because she was a woman. Yes, she's also like up there in the pantheon of great legislative leaders in the history of the country. No question. Yeah. No question. And you, she has the, you know, she has the bona fides. You weren't but, saying that necessarily when you ran against her, but I didn't, no. I, you know, and I, I think one of the reasons her and I have been able to maintain a good relationship because I was always honest. Mm-hmm. I was just like, you know, I love Nancy Pelosi. They did run that in an ad this past yes, <laughs> November. I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, it was like, I love Nancy Pelosi, but we've got this problem with our brand in places like Ohio, because this was right after Trump won. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've always been kind of on the cutting edge of like, we've got to rebrand. We've got to rebrand. We've got to rebrand. And so I think Hakeem, um, Congresswoman Clark, um, Pete, like these are, these are very talented. Clark from Massachusetts. Yeah. She's, um, you know, these guys are very talented. They've got a lot of good experience and they're, they're a new generation. And I think that's really what we need. And I have to ask you this. You ran for president. We didn't mention that. I remember it uh, back in <laughs> 2020. Jo- you ran against Joe Biden. He was one of the other candidates. You said during the campaign, and it may have been good politics, I don't know, that you thought he shouldn't run again. Mm-hmm. What signal does it send that change of leadership in the House when all the octogenarians said we're stepping down, Steny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, and Nancy Pelosi to make room for this new generation. Was there a message in that for the president? How do you think he should I, receive it? I, I think so. I mean, I think like we have to be about, and it's easier for, for me, a guy like me, to say, because I was always the generation that like wanted to, like our, it was our turn. And you know, I just I just think that by them stepping down, they are doing what a lot of successful companies and institutions do and that they're staying on. Right. They're going to help through the transition and they're going to be there to tap into for their their experience and expertise. But they're they're out. And I just think that's how we should we should think about doing this. So you said he shouldn't run. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, I do. You know, their answer, first of all, let me just stipulate, I've said it, you know, I think if it were just a matter of the guy's record, I think he, I would take that campaign and I'd feel very confident that we would win Mm re-election. This isn't a matter of politics. It's just a matter of, you know, actuarial fact and people, and that, that creates a problem. But their answer would be, well, if he doesn't do it, who will? I so, mean that's not that's not the question to ask though I don't think there's plenty of talent in the Democratic Party people would run the system as you know uh, helps people meet the moment you know we saw in the last campaign Pete Buttigieg started as a small town mayor and wound up as a national figure and secretary of transportation yeah. and so on and that happens through that guy process. named Barack Obama was four years out of the state senate yeah and after a two year campaign people decided hey. This guy could actually be president. So let that process, you know, play out. And I think what they're saying is it's going to be Trump. It's going to be Biden, Trump, Biden, Biden wins. Maybe that whole thing to me drives me nuts. Like that's we got 330 million people in America and we're going to do this again. But, you know, the the reality of it is, is I my estimation, it'd probably be DeSantis before it's Trump. And a DeSantis 40 some year old against mm-hmm. against 
you know, the president is a totally different dynamic, mm-hmm. you know, just a totally different dynamic, not even factoring in where's the economy, where's where gas price, all that other stuff that would come in. I just think straight, a lot of people vote the optics, like America needs some new leadership. And finally, I said I was going to ask you about you. So what about you? I'm not asking you about whether you'd run for president if Biden didn't. I think your wife would be really pissed if I asked you that. <laughs> but uh, but what, what are your plans? What are you thinking about for the future? And are you done with politics? I'm done for now. You know, I don't ever want to, like, rule it out in the future because, you know, I feel like that's a great and involved years of Catholic school, like that's a great expression of service. I always saw it that way. I always felt that way about it. Um, but I want to, I want to continue to do things that are going to be an extension of what I did. So I want to, you know, as a huge proponent of natural gas, I think that's to me where we need to be from a, from a consistent energy policy, um, to get other countries off coal, create jobs here, blah, blah, blah. I want to keep doing that. Um, so I'll be working on on that issue. I want to continue in the defense technology space. I think that's really important for us to outcompete China. Um, continue to go down that road. So I'm going to be doing some of that. I'm super into like the health and wellness stuff. So a lot of the medical cannabis stuff that's out there. And then I want to continue to do like the meditation and yoga stuff. That really, I think, like when you look at the levels of trauma, deaths of despair, mm-hmm. there's a place, especially post pandemic. Post pandemic is even worse. So you know. How is psilocybin helping vets heal, mm-hmm. right? How is meditation and yoga and some of these body practices that can help soothe your nervous system um, get you get you off of meds? Like in our kids and that are in trauma in our schools, like we we got to completely reevaluate how we're dealing with this. We're going to put them on drugs. Yeah, it doesn't work. Like right. like there's other techniques, breathing techniques, meditation techniques, contemplative practice, completely void of any religious context. And so how do we take that, the science of that, and get it into our schools to help our kids? Yeah. They need it now more than ever with the technology and the fear of missing out and the fear of other people's opinions and the the whole bastardization of your 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 image. Yeah. Like you can't suffer. You can't be in pain. You yeah. can't be hurt. You can't cry. You got you got you gotta have your Facebook page up or your vacation. Yeah. And that's well, there's, you, you've touched on the <laughs> you've touched on a source of so much of this that we haven't fully gotten our arms around, which is the impact of social media in so many different ways on society and on individuals. Mm-hmm. We're just beginning to explore that. Tim Ryan, well, we know it's you, not you're, healthy. you are one interesting dude. Man. And I <laughs> this really, is all without any bourbon or I, wine or beer. I, I, I know, I know. <laughs> That's for the after show. All right. <laughs> but uh, but I so appreciate seeing you. And thank you for being at the Institute of Politics. Thank you. You're going you're gonna to find a lot of young people here who have the capacity to change the world, and you're going to you're going to inspire them. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. I mean, I remember bumping in you during the presidential. Yes. And you always... You always had an encouraging word and nice things to say, and your texts over the last yeah. few months meant a lot to me. So Thank you. I'm so glad to know you, and I'm eager to see what you do next. So Thank thanks. you. All right. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.